piqued by it. Sometimes in sports, it takes a close loss to finally convince an underdog that they've got the ability to compete with that competitor that intimidated and beat them for so long. The loss might be painful, but as Franklin put it, it can also instruct. With a business, we take most failures less personally and understand that they are part of the process. If an investment or a new product pays off, great. If it fails, we're fine because we're prepared for it. We didn't invest every penny in that option. It's why great entrepreneurs are never wedded to a position, never afraid to lose a little bit of their investment, never bitter or embarrassed, never out of the game for long. They slip many times, but they don't fall. Even though we know that there are great lessons from failure, lessons we've seen with our own two eyes, we repeatedly shirk from it. We do everything we can to avoid it, thinking it's embarrassing or shameful. We fail, kicking and screaming. Well, why would I ever want to fail? It hurts. I would never claim it doesn't. But can we acknowledge that anticipated temporary failure certainly hurts less than catastrophic permanent failure? Like any good school, learning from failure isn't free. The tuition is paid in discomfort or loss and having to start over. Be glad to pay the cost. There will be no better teacher for your career, for your book, for your new venture. There's a saying about the Irish ship captain who located all the rocks in the harbor using the bottom of his boat. Whatever works, right? Remember Erwin Rommel and the quick work he made of the British and American forces in North Africa? There's another part to that story. The Allied forces actually chose that disadvantageous battlefield on purpose. Churchill knew they would have to take their first stand against the Germans somewhere, but to do that and lose in Europe would be disastrous for morale. In North Africa, the British learned how to fight the Germans, and early on they learned mostly by failure. But that was acceptable because they'd anticipated a learning curve and planned for it. They welcomed it because they knew, like Grant and Edison did, what it meant, victory further down the road. As a result, the troops Hitler faced in Italy were far better than those he'd faced in Africa, and the ones he ultimately faced in France and Germany were better still. The one way to guarantee we don't learn from failure, to ensure it is a bad thing, is to not learn from it. To continue to try the same thing over and over, which is the definition of insanity for a reason. People fail in small ways all the time, but they don't learn, they don't listen, they don't see the problems that failure exposes. It doesn't make them better. Thick-headed and resistant to change, these are the types who are too self-absorbed to realize that the world doesn't have time to plead, argue, and convince them of their own errors. Soft-bodied and hard-headed, they have too much armor and ego to fail well. It's time you understand that the world is telling you something with each and every failure in action. It's feedback, giving you precise instruction on how to improve. It's trying to wake you up from your cluelessness. It's trying to teach you something. Listen. Lessons come hard only if you're deaf to them. Don't be. Being able to see and understand the world this way is part and parcel of overturning obstacles. Here a negative becomes a positive. We turn what could otherwise be disappointment into opportunity. Failure shows us the way by showing us what isn't the way. Follow the process. Under the comb, the tangle and the straight path are the same. Heraclitus. Coach Nick Saban doesn't actually refer to it very often, but every one of his assistants and players live by it. They say it for him, tattooing it at the front of their minds and on every action they take. Because just two words are responsible for their unprecedented success. The process. Saban, the head coach of the University of Alabama football team, perhaps the most dominant dynasty in the history of college football, doesn't focus on what every other coach focuses on, or at least not the way they do. He teaches the process. The process in his words. Don't think about winning the SEC championship. Don't think about the national championship. Think about what you needed to do in this drill, on this play, in this moment. That's the process. Let's think about what we can do today, the task at hand. In the chaos of sport, as in life, 
process provides us a way. It says, okay, you've got to do something very difficult. Don't focus on that. Instead, break it down into pieces. Simply do what you need to do right now and do it well, and then move on to the next thing. Follow the process and not the prize. The road to back-to-back -back championships is just that, a road, and you travel along a road in steps. Excellence is a matter of steps, excelling at this one, and then that one, and then the one after that. Sabin's process is exclusively this, existing in the present, taking it one step at a time, not getting distracted by anything else, not the other team, not the scoreboard, or the crowd. The process is about finishing. Finishing games, finishing workouts, finishing film sessions, finishing drives, finishing reps, finishing plays, finishing blocks, finishing the smallest tasks you have right in front of you, and finishing it well. Whether it's pursuing the pinnacle of success in your field, or simply surviving some awful or trying ordeal, the same approach works. Don't think about the end, think about surviving. Making it from meal to meal, break to break, checkpoint to checkpoint, paycheck to paycheck, one day at a time. And when you really get it right, even the hardest things become manageable, because the process is relaxing. Under its influence, we needn't panic. Even mammoth tasks become just a series of component parts. This was what the great 19th century pioneer of meteorology, James Pollard Espy, had shown to him in a chance encounter as a young man. Unable to read and write until he was 18, Espy attended a rousing speech by the famous orator Henry Clay. After the talk, a spellbound Espy tried to make his way towards Clay, but couldn't form the words to speak to his idol. One of his friends shouted out for him, He wants to be like you, even though he can't read. Clay grabbed one of his posters, which had the word Clay written in big letters. He looked at Espy and said, You see that boy? Pointing to a letter? That's an A. Now you've only got 25 more letters to go. Espy had just been gifted the process. Within a year, he started college. I know that seems almost too simple, but envision, for a second, a master practicing an exceedingly difficult craft and making it look effortless. There's no strain, no struggle, so relaxed, no exertion or worry, just one clean movement after another. That's a result of the process. We can channel this too. We needn't scramble like we're so often inclined to do when some difficult task sits in front of us. Remember the first time you saw a complicated algebra equation? It was just a jumble of symbols and unknowns. But you then stopped, took a deep breath, and broke it down. You isolated the variables, solved for them, and all that's left was the answer. Do that now, for whatever obstacles you come across. We can take a breath, do the immediate composite part in front of us, and follow its thread into the next action. Everything in order, everything connected. When it comes to our actions, disorder and distraction are death. The unordered mind loses track of what's in front of it, what matters, and gets distracted by thoughts of the future. The process is order. It keeps our perceptions in check and our actions in sync. It seems obvious, but we forget this when it matters most. Right now, if I knocked you down and pinned you to the ground, how would you respond? You'd probably panic, and then you'd push with all your strength to get me off you. It wouldn't work. Just using my body weight, I would be able to keep your shoulders against the ground with little effort, and you'd grow exhausted fighting it. That's the opposite of the process. There is a much easier way. First, you don't panic. You conserve your energy. You don't do anything stupid like get yourself choked out by acting without thinking. You focus on not letting it get worse. Then you get your arms up to brace and create some breathing room, some space. Now work to get to your side. From there, you can start to break down my hold on you. Grab an arm, trap a leg, buck with your hips and slide in a knee and push away. It'll take some time, but you'll get yourself out. At each step, the person on top is forced to give a little up till there's nothing left. Then you're free, thanks to the process. Being trapped is just a position, not a fate. You get out of it by addressing and eliminating each part of that position through small, deliberate action. 
not by trying and failing to push it away with superhuman strength. With our business rivals, we rack our brains to think of some mind-blowing new product that will make them all irrelevant, and in the process, we take our eye off the ball. We shy away from writing a book or making a film, even though it's our dream, because it's so much work. We can't imagine how to get from here to there. How often do we compromise or settle because we feel that the real solution is too ambitious or outside our grasp? How often do we assume that change is impossible because it's too big, involves too many different groups? Or worse, how many people are paralyzed by all their ideas and inspirations? They chase them all and go nowhere, distracting themselves and never making headway. They're brilliant, sure, but they rarely execute. They rarely get where they want and need to go. All of these issues are solvable. Each would collapse beneath the process. We've just wrongly assumed that it all has to happen at once, and we give up at the thought of it. We are A to Z thinkers, fretting about A, obsessing over Z, yet forgetting all about B through Y. We want to have goals, yes, so everything we do can be in service of something purposeful. When we know what we are really setting out to do, the obstacles that arise tend to seem smaller, more manageable. When we don't, each one looms larger and seems impossible. Goals help us put the blips and bumps in their proper proportion. When we get distracted, when we start caring about something other than our own progress and efforts, the process is the helpful, if occasionally bossy, voice in our head. It is the bark of the wise older leader who knows exactly who he is and what he's got to do. Shut up, go back to your stations, try to think about what we are going to do ourselves instead of worrying about what's going on out there. You know what your job is, stop jawing and get to work. The process is the voice that demands we take responsibility and ownership, that prompts us to act, even if only in a small way. Like a relentless machine, subjugating resistance each and every way it exists, little by little, moving forward one step at a time. Subordinate strength to the process. Replace fear with the process. Depend on it. Lean on it. Trust in it. Take your time. Don't rush. Some problems are harder than others. Deal with the ones right in front of you first. Come back to the others later. You'll get there. The process is about doing the right things right now, not worrying about what might happen later or the results or the whole picture. Do your job, do it right. Whatever is rightly done, however humble, is noble. Sir Henry Royce Long past his humble beginnings, President Andrew Johnson would speak proudly of his career as a tailor before he'd entered politics. My garments never ripped or gave way, he would say. On the campaign trail, a heckler once tried to embarrass him by shouting about his working-class credentials. Johnson replied without breaking a stride. That does not disconcert me in the least, for when I used to be a tailor I had the reputation of being a good one, and making close fits, always punctual with my customers, and always did good work. Another president, James Garfield, paid his way through college in 1851 by convincing his school, the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute, to let him be the janitor in exchange for tuition. He did the job every day, smiling and without a hint of shame. Each morning he'd ring the university's bell tower to start the classes, his day having already long begun, and stomped a class with cheer and eagerness. Within just one year of starting at the school, he was a professor, teaching a full course load in addition to his studies. By his 26th birthday, he was the dean. This is what happens when you do your job, whatever it is, and do it well. These men went from humble poverty to power by always doing what they were asked to do, and doing it right, and with real pride, and doing it better than anyone else, in fact, doing it well, because no one else wanted to do it. Sometimes on the road to where we are going or where we want to be, we have to do things that we'd rather not do. Often when we are just starting out, our first jobs introduce us to the broom, as Andrew Carnegie famously put it, and there's nothing shameful about sweeping. It's just another opportunity to excel and to learn. But you, you are so busy thinking about the future, you don't take any pride in the tasks that you're given now. You just phone it all in, 
cash your paycheck, and dream of some higher station in life. Or you think, this is just a job. It isn't who I am. It doesn't matter. Foolishness. Everything we do matters, whether it's making smoothies while you save up money or are studying for the bar, or even after you've already achieved the success you sought. Everything is a chance to do and be your best. Only a self-absorbed asshole thinks they are too good for whatever their current station requires. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, and wherever we are going, we owe it to ourselves, to our art, to the world, to do it well. That's our primary duty, and our obligation. When action is our priority, vanity falls away. An artist is given many different canvases and commissions in their lifetime. What matters is that they treat each one as a priority. Whether it's the most glamorous or the highest paying is irrelevant. Each project matters, and the only degrading part is giving less than one is capable of giving. Same goes for us. We will be and do many things in our lives. Some are prestigious, some are onerous, none are beneath us. To whatever we face, our job is to respond with hard work, honesty, and helping others as best we can. You should never have to ask yourself, but what am I supposed to do now? Because you know the answer, your job. Whether anyone notices, whether we're paid for it, whether the project turns out successfully, it doesn't matter. We can and always should act with those three traits, no matter the obstacle. There will never be any obstacles that can ever truly prevent us from carrying out our obligation. Harder or easier challenges, sure, but never impossible. Each and every task requires our best, whether we're facing down bankruptcy or angry customers, or raking in money and deciding how to grow from here. If we do our best, we can be proud of our choices and confident that they're the right ones. Because we did our job, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Obligation sounds stuffy and oppressive. You want to be able to do whatever you want. But duty is beautiful and inspiring and empowering. Steve Jobs cared even about the inside of his products, making sure it was beautifully designed, even though the user would never see it. Taught by his father, who would finish even the back of his cabinets, though they would be hidden against the wall, to think like a craftsman. In every design predicament, Jobs knew his marching orders, respect the craft, and make something beautiful. Every situation is different, obviously. We're not inventing the next iPad or iPhone, but we are making something for someone, even if it's just for our own resume. Every part, especially the work no one sees, the tough things we wanted to avoid or could have skated away from, we can treat the same way that Jobs did, with pride and dedication. The great psychologist Viktor Frankl, survivor of three concentration camps, found presumptuousness in the age-old question, what is the meaning of life? As though it is someone else's responsibility to tell you. Instead, he said, the world is asking you that question, and it's your job to answer it with your actions. In every situation, life is asking us a question, and our actions are the answer. Our job is simply to answer well. Right action, unselfish, dedicated, masterful, creative. That is the answer to that question. That's one way to find the meaning of life and how to turn every obstacle into an opportunity. If you see any of this as a burden, you're looking at it the wrong way because all we need to do is those three little duties to try hard, to be honest, and to help others and ourselves. That's all that's been asked of us. No more and no less. Sure, the end goal is important, but never forget that each individual instance matters too. Each is a snapshot of the whole. The whole isn't certain, only the instances are. How you do anything is how you can do everything. We can always act right. What's right is what works. The cucumber is bitter, then throw it out. There are brambles in the path, then go around. That's all you need to know. Marcus Aurelius In 1915, deep in the jungles of South America, the rising conflict between two rival American fruit companies came to a head. 
each desperately wanted to acquire the same 5,000 acres of valuable land. The issue? Two different locals claimed to own the deed to the plantation. In the no-man's land between Honduras and Guatemala, neither company was able to tell who was the rightful owner, so they could buy it from them. How they each responded to this problem was defined by their company's organization and ethos. One company was big and powerful, and the other crafty and cunning. The first, one of the most powerful corporations in the United States, United Fruit. The second, a small upstart owned by Samuel Zamuri. To solve the problem, United Fruit dispatched a team of high-powered lawyers. They set out in search of every file and scrap of paper in the country, ready to pay whatever it cost to win. Money, time, and resources were no object. Zamuri, the tiny, uneducated competitor, was outmatched, right? He couldn't play their game, so he didn't. Flexible, fluid, and defiant, he just met separately with both of the supposed owners and bought the land from each one of them. He paid twice, sure, but it was over. The land was his. Forget the rule book, settle the issue. This is pragmatism embodied. Don't worry about the right way. Worry about the right way. This is how we get things done. Samuri always treated obstacles this way. Told he couldn't build a bridge he needed across the Utila River because the government officials had been bribed by competitors to make bridges illegal, Samuri had his engineers build two long piers instead, and in between, which reached out far into the center of the river, he strung a temporary pontoon that could be assembled and deployed to connect them in a matter of hours. Railroads ran down each side of the pier going in the opposite directions. When United Fruit complained, Zamuri laughed and replied, Why, that's no bridge. It's just a couple of little old wharves. Sometimes you have to do it this way, sometimes that way, not deploying the tactics you learned in school, but adapting them to fit each and every situation. Any way that works, that's the motto. We spend a lot of time thinking about how things are supposed to be or what the rules say we should do, trying to get it all perfect. We tell ourselves that we'll get started once the conditions are right, or once we're sure we can trust this or that, when really it'd be better to focus on making do with what we've got, on focusing on results instead of pretty methods. As they say in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it doesn't matter how you get your opponent to the ground, after all, only that you take them down. What Zamuri never lost sight of was the mission, getting bananas across the river. Whether it was a bridge or two piers with a dock in the middle, it didn't matter so long as it got the cargo where it needed to go. When he wanted to plant bananas on a particular plantation, it wasn't important to find the rightful owner of the land. It was to become the rightful owner. You've got your mission, whatever it is. To accomplish it, like the rest of us, you're in the pinch between the way you wish things were and the way they actually are, which always seems to be a disaster. How far are you willing to go? What are you willing to do about it? Scratch the complaining, no waffling, no submitting to powerlessness or fear. You can't just run home to mommy. How are you going to solve this problem? How are you going to get around the rules that hold you back? Maybe you'll need to be a little more cunning or conniving than feels comfortable. Sometimes that requires ignoring some outdated regulations or asking for forgiveness from management later rather than for permission, which would be denied right now. But if you've got an important mission, all that matters is that you accomplish it. At 21, Richard Wright was not the world-famous author he would eventually be, but poor and black, he decided he would read and that no one would stop him. Did he storm the library and make a scene? No, not in the Jim Crow South he didn't. Instead, he forged a note that said, Dear Madame, will you please let this nigger boy have some books by H.L. Mankin? Because no one would write that about themselves, right? And checked the books out with a stolen library card, pretending they were for someone else. With the stakes this high, you better be willing to bend the rules or do something desperate or crazy. To thumb your nose at the authorities and say, What? This is not a bridge. I don't know what you're talking about or in some cases giving the middle finger to the people trying to hold you down and blowing right through their evil, disgusting rules. Pragmatism is not so much realism as flexibility. There are a lot of ways to get from point A to point B. It doesn't have to be a straight line. 
It's just got to get you where you need to go. But so many of us spend so much time looking for the perfect solution that we pass up what's right in front of us. As Dong Xiaoping once said, I don't care if the cat is black or white, so long as it catches mice. The Stoics had their own reminder, don't go expecting Plato's Republic, because you're never going to find that kind of perfection. Instead, do the best with what you've got. Not that pragmatism is inherently at odds with idealism or pushing the ball forward. The first iPhone was revolutionary, but it still shipped without a copy and paste feature or a handful of other features that they would have liked to have included. Steve Jobs, the supposed perfectionist, knew that at some point you have to compromise. What mattered was that you got it done, and it works. Start thinking like a radical pragmatist, still ambitious, aggressive, and rooted in ideals, but also imminently practical and guided by the possible. Not on everything you would like to have, not on changing the world right at this moment, but ambitious enough to get everything you need. Don't think small, but make the distinction between the critical and the extra. Think progress, not perfection. Under this kind of force, obstacles break apart. They have no choice. Since you're going around them or making them irrelevant, there is nothing for them to resist. In Praise of the Flank Attack Whoever cannot see, the unforeseen sees nothing, for the known way is an impasse. Heraclitus The popular image of George Washington in American lore is of a brave and bold general, towering over everything he surveyed, repelling the occupied and tyrannical British. Of course, the true picture is a little less glorious. Washington wasn't a guerrilla, but he was close enough. He was wily, evasive, often refusing to battle. His army was small, undertrained, undersupplied, and fragile. He waged a war mostly of defense, deliberately avoiding large formations of British troops. For all the rhetoric, most of his maneuvers were pinpricks against a stronger, bigger enemy, hit and run, stick and move. Never attack where it is obvious, Washington told his men. Don't attack as the enemy would expect, he explained. Instead, where little danger is apprehended, the more the enemy will be unprepared, and consequently, there is the fairest prospect of success. He had a sense for which minor skirmishes would feel and look like major victories. His most glorious victory wasn't even a direct battle with the British. Instead, Washington, nearly at the end of his rope, crossed the Delaware at dawn on Christmas Day, to attack a group of sleeping German mercenaries who may or may not have been drunk. He was actually better at withdrawing than at advancing, skilled at saving troops that otherwise would have been lost in defeat. Washington rarely got trapped. He always had a way out. Hoping simply to tire his enemy out, this evasiveness was a powerful weapon, though not necessarily a glamorous one. It is not surprising, then, as the general of the Continental Army and the country's first president, that his legacy has been whitewashed and embellished a little. And he's not the only general we've done it for. The great myth of history, propagated by movies and stories in our own ignorance, is that wars are won and lost by two great armies going head-to-head -head in battle. It's a dramatic, courageous notion, but also very, very wrong. In a study of 30 conflicts comprising more than 280 campaigns from ancient to modern history, the brilliant strategist and historian B.H. Liddell Hart came to a stunning conclusion. In only six of the 280 campaigns was the decisive victory a result of a direct attack on the enemy's main army. Only six. That's two percent. If not from pitched battles, where do we find victory? From everything else. From the flanks. From the unexpected. From the psychological from drawing the opponent out from their defenses, from the untraditional, from anything but. As Hart writes in his masterwork strategy, the great captain will take even the most hazardous indirect approach, if necessary over mountains, deserts, or swamps, with only a fraction of the forces, even cutting himself loose from his communications. 
facing, in fact, every unfavorable condition rather than accept the risk of stalemate invited by direct approach. When you're at your wit's end, straining and straining with all your might, when people tell you you look like you might pop a vein, take a step back, then go around the problem. Find some leverage. Approach from what they call the line of least expectation. What's your first instinct when faced with a challenge? Is it to outspend the competition? Argue with people in an attempt to change long-held opinions? Are you trying to barge through the front door? Because the back door, side doors, and windows may have been left wide open. Whatever you're doing, it's going to be harder, to say nothing of impossible, if your plan includes defying physics and logic. Instead, think of Grant realizing that he had to bypass Vicksburg, not go at it, in order to capture it. Think of Hall of Fame coach Phil Jackson and his famous triangle offense, which is designed to automatically route the basketball away from defensive pressure rather than attack it directly. If we are starting from scratch and the established players have had time to build up their defenses, there is just no way we are going to beat them on their strengths. So it's smarter to not even try, but instead focus our limited resources elsewhere. Part of the reason why a certain skill often seems so effortless for great masters is not just that they've mastered the process. They really are doing less than the rest of us who don't know any better. They choose to exert only calculated force where it will be effective rather than straining and struggling with pointless attrition tactics. As someone once put it after fighting Jogoro Kano, the legendary five-foot-tall founder of judo, trying to fight with Kano, was like trying to fight with an empty jacket. That can be you. Being outnumbered, coming from behind, being low on funds, these don't have to be disadvantages. They can be gifts, assets that make us less likely to commit suicide with a head-to-head -head attack. These things force us to be creative, to find workarounds, to sublimate the ego and do anything to win besides challenging our enemy where they are strongest. These are the signs that tell us to approach from an oblique angle. In fact, having the advantage of size or strength or power is often the birthing ground for true and fatal weakness. The inertia of success makes it harder to truly develop good technique. People or companies who have that size advantage never really have to learn the process when they're able to coast on brute force. And that works for them until it doesn't until they meet you and you make quick work of them with deft and oblique maneuvers when you refuse to face them in the one setting they know, head to head. We're in the game of little defeating big. Therefore, force can't try to match force. Of course, when pushed, the instinct is always to push back. But martial arts teach us that we have to ignore this impulse. We can't push back. We have to pull until they lose their balance. Then we make our move. The art of the side door strategy is a vast creative space, and it is by no means limited to war, business, or sales. The great philosopher Soren Kierkegaard rarely sought to convince people directly from a position of authority. Instead of lecturing, he practiced a method he called indirect communication. Kierkegaard would write under pseudonyms, where each fake personality would embody a different platform or perspective writing multiple times on the same subject from multiple angles to convey his point emotionally and dramatically. He would rarely tell the reader, do this or think that. Instead, he would show new ways of looking at or understanding the world. You don't convince people by challenging their longest and most firmly held opinions. You find a common ground and work from there. Or you look for leverage to make them listen or you create an alternative with so much support from other people that the opposition voluntarily abandons its views and joins your camp. The way that works isn't always the most impressive. Sometimes it feels like you're taking a shortcut or fighting unfairly. There's a lot of pressure to try to match people move for move, as if sticking with what works for you is somehow cheating. Let me save you the guilt and self-flagellation. It's not. You're acting like a real strategist. You aren't just throwing your weight around and hoping it works. You're not wasting your energy in battles driven by ego and pride rather than tactical advantage. Believe it or not, this is the hard way. That's why it works. Remember, sometimes 
The longest way around is the shortest way home. Use obstacles against themselves. Wise men are able to make a fitting use even of their enemies. Plutarch. Gandhi didn't fight for independence for India. The British Empire did all of the fighting, and as it happened, all of the losing. That was deliberate, of course. Gandhi's extensive Satyagraha campaign and civil disobedience shows that action has many definitions. It's not always moving forward or even obliquely. It can also be a matter of positions. It can be a matter of taking a stand. Sometimes you overcome obstacles not by attacking them, by withdrawing and letting them attack you. You can use the actions of others against themselves instead of acting yourself. Weak compared to the forces he hoped to change, Gandhi leaned into that weakness, exaggerated it, and exposed himself. He said to the most powerful occupying military in the world, "I am marching to the ocean to collect salt in direct violation of your laws." He was provoking them. What are you going to do about it? There's nothing wrong with what we are doing. Knowing that it placed authorities in an impossible dilemma, enforce a bankrupt policy or abdicate. Within that framework, the military's enormous strength is neutralized. Its very usage is counterproductive. Martin Luther King Jr., taking Gandhi's lead, told his followers that they would meet physical force with soul force. In other words, they would use the power of opposites. In the face of violence, they would be peaceful. To hate, they would answer with love, and in the process, they would expose those attributes as indefensible and evil. Opposites work. Non-action can be action. It uses the power of others and allows us to absorb their power as our own, letting them. Or the obstacle do the work for us. Just ask the Russians who defeated Napoleon and the Nazis not by rigidly protecting their borders, but by retreating into the interior and leaving the heat in the winter to do their work on the enemy, bogged down in battles far from home. Is this an action? You bet it is. Perhaps your enemy or obstacle really is insurmountable, as it was for many of these groups. Perhaps in this case that you haven't got the ability to win through attrition, persistence. Or you don't want to risk learning on the job. Iterate. Okay, you still got a long way to go from needing to give up. It is, however, time to acknowledge that some adversity may be impossible for you to defeat, no matter how hard you try. Instead, you must find some way to use the adversity, its energy, to help yourself. Before the invention of steam power, boat captains had an ingenious way of defeating the wickedly strong current of the Mississippi River. A boat going upriver would pull alongside a boat about to head downriver, and after wrapping a rope around a tree or a rock, the boats would tie themselves to each other. The second boat would go and let the river take it downstream, slingshotting the other vessel upstream. So instead of fighting obstacles, find a means of making them defeat themselves. There is a famous story of Alexander the Great doing just that. And it was Alexander's masterful use of an obstacle against itself that gave observers their first hint that the ambitious teenager would one day conquer the world. As a young man, he trained his famous horse Bucephalus, the horse that even his father, King Philip of Macedon, could not break, by tiring him out. While others tried sheer force and whips and ropes only to be bucked off, Alexander succeeded by lightly mounting and simply hanging on until the horse was calm. Having exhausted himself, Bucephalus had no choice but to submit to his rider's influence. Alexander would ride into battle on this faithful horse for the next twenty years. Now, what of your obstacles? Yes, sometimes we need to learn from Amelia Earhart and just take action, but we also have to be ready to see that restraint might be the best action for us to take. Sometimes in your life, you need to have patience, wait for temporary obstacles to fizzle out. Let two jousting egos sort themselves out instead of jumping immediately into the fray. Sometimes a problem needs less of you, fewer people, period, and not more. When we want things too badly, we can be our own worst enemy. In our eagerness, we strip the very screw we want to turn and make it impossible to ever get what we want. We spin our tires in the snow or the mud and dig a deeper rut, one that we'll never get out of. 
We get so consumed with moving forward that we forget that there are other ways to get where we are heading. It doesn't naturally occur to us that standing still, or in some cases even going backward, might be the best way to advance. Don't just do something, stand there. We push and push to get a raise for a new client to prevent some exigency from happening. In fact, the best way to get what we want might be to re-examine those desires in the first place. Or it might be to aim for something else entirely and to use that impediment as an opportunity to explore a new direction. In doing so, we might end up creating a new venture that replaces our insufficient income entirely. Or we might discover that in ignoring clients, we attract more, finding that they want to work with someone who does not so badly want to work with them. Or we rethink that disaster we feared, along with everyone else, and come up with a way to profit from it when and if it happens. We wrongly assume that moving forward is the only way to progress, the only way we can win. Sometimes, staying put, going sideways, or moving backwards is actually the best way to eliminate what blocks or impedes our path. There's a certain humility required in this approach. It means accepting that the way you originally wanted to do things is not possible. You just haven't got it in you to do it the traditional way. But so what? What matters is whether a certain approach gets you where you want to go. And let's be clear, using obstacles against themselves is very different than doing nothing. Passive resistance is, in fact, incredibly active. But those actions come in the form of discipline, self-control, fearlessness, determination, and grand strategy. The great strategist Saul Alinsky believed that if you push a negative hard enough and deep enough, it will break through into its counterside. Every positive has its negative. Every negative has its positive. The action is in the pushing through, all the way through to the other side, making a negative into a positive. This should be great solace. It means that very few obstacles are ever too big for us, because that bigness may in fact be an advantage, because we can use that bigness against the obstacle itself. Remember, a castle can be an intimidating, impenetrable fortress, or it can be turned into a prison when surrounded. The difference is simply a shift in action and approach. We can use the things that block us to our advantage, letting them do the difficult work for us. Sometimes that means leaving the obstacle as it is, instead of trying so hard to change it. The harder Bucephalus ran, the sooner he got tired out. The more vicious the police response to civil disobedience, the more sympathetic the cause becomes. The more they fight, the easier it becomes. The harder you fight, the less you'll achieve, other than exhaustion. So it goes with our own problems. Channel Your Energy When jarred unavoidably by circumstance, revert at once to yourself and don't lose the rhythm more than you can help. You'll have a better grasp of harmony if you keep going back to it. Marcus Aurelius as a tennis player, Arthur Ashe was a beautiful contradiction. To survive segregation in the 1950s and 1960s, he learned from his father to mask his emotions and feelings on the court. No reacting, no getting upset at missed shots, and no challenging bad calls. Certainly as a black player, he could not afford to show off, celebrate, or be seen as trying too hard. But his actual form and playing style was something quite different. All the energy and emotion that he had to suppress was channeled into a bold and graceful playing form. While his face was controlled, his body was alive, fluid, brilliant, and all over the court. His style is best described in the epigram he created for himself, physically loose and mentally tight. For Arthur Ashe, this combination created a nearly unbeatable tennis game. As a person, he'd control his emotions. But as a player, he was swashbuckling, bold, and cool. He dove for balls and took and made the kind of shots that made other players gasp. He was able to do this because he was free. He was free where it mattered, inside. Other players, free to celebrate, free to throw tantrums or glare at refs and opponents, never seemed to be able to handle the pressure of high-stakes matches the way Ash could. They often mistook Ash as inhuman, as bottled up 
Feelings need an outlet, of course, but Ash deployed them to fuel his explosive speed in his slams and chips and dies. In the abandon with which he played, there was none of the quiet prudence with which he composed himself. Adversity can harden you, or it can loosen you up and make you better, if you let it. Rename it and claim it. That's what Ash did, as have many other black athletes. The boxer Joe Lewis, for example, knew that racist white boxing fans would not tolerate an emotional black fighter, so he sublimated all displays behind a steely, blank face. Known as the Ring Robot, he greatly intimidated opponents by seeming almost inhuman. He took a disadvantage and turned it into an unexpected asset in the ring. We all have our own constraints to deal with. Rules and social norms were required to observe that we'd rather not. Dress codes, protocols, procedures, legal obligations, and company hierarchies that are all telling us how we have to behave. Think about it too much and it could start to feel oppressive, even suffocating. If we're not careful, this is liable to throw us off our game. Instead of giving in to frustration, though, we can put it to good use. It can power our actions, which, unlike our disposition, become stronger and better when loose and bold. While others obsess with observing the rules, we're subtly undermining them and subverting them to our advantage. Think water. When damned by a man-made obstacle, it doesn't simply sit stagnant. Instead, its energy is stored and deployed, fueling the power plants that run entire cities. Toussaint Louvenchure, the former Haitian slave turned general, so exasperated his French enemies that they once remarked, This man makes an opening everywhere. He was so fluid, so uncontainable, that he was actually given the surname Levenchure, meaning the opening. It makes sense. Everything in his life had been an obstacle and he turned as many of his experiences as he could into openings. Why should troops or politics or mountains or Napoleon himself have been any different? And yet we feel like going to pieces when the PowerPoint projector doesn't work, instead of throwing it aside and delivering an exciting talk without notes. We stir up gossip with our coworkers instead of pounding something productive out on our keyboards. We act out instead of act. But think of an athlete in the pocket, in the zone, on a streak, and the seemingly insurmountable obstacles that fall in the face of that effortless state. Enormous deficits collapse. Every pass or shot hits its intended target. Fatigue melts away. Those athletes might be stopped from carrying out this or that action, but not the goal. External factors influence the path, but not the direction. Forward. What setbacks in our lives could resist that elegant, fluid, and powerful mastery? To be physically and mentally loose, that takes no talent. That's just recklessness. We want right action, not action, period. To be physically and mentally tight, that's called anxiety. It doesn't work well either. Eventually, we snap. But physical looseness combined with mental restraint, that is powerful. It's a power that drives our opponents and competitors nuts. They think we're toying with them. It's maddening, like we aren't even trying, like we've tuned out the world, like we're immune to external stressors and limitations on the march toward our goals, because we are. Seize the offensive. The best men are not those who have waited for chances but who have taken them, besieged chance, conquered the chance, and made chance the servitor. E.H. Chapin In the spring of 2008, Barack Obama's presidential candidacy was imperiled. A race scandal involving inflammatory remarks by his pastor, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, threatened to unravel his campaign, to break the thin bond he'd established between black and white voters at a critical moment in the primaries. Race, religion, demographics, controversy emulsified into one. It was the kind of political disaster that political campaigns do not survive, leaving most candidates so paralyzed by fear that they defer from taking action. Their typical response is to hide, ignore, obfuscate, or distance themselves. Whatever one thinks about Obama's politics, no one can deny what happened next. He turned one of the lowest moments in his campaign into a surprise offensive. Against all advice and convention, 
he decided that he would take action and that this negative situation was actually a teachable moment. Obama channeled the attention and energy swirling around the controversy to draw a national audience and speak directly to the American people of the divisive issue of race. This speech, known today as the A More Perfect Union speech, was a transformative moment. Instead of distancing himself, Obama addressed everything directly. In doing so, he not only neutralized a potentially fatal controversy, but created an opportunity to seize the electoral high ground. Absorbing the power of that negative situation, his campaign was instantly infused with an energy that propelled it into the White House. If you think it's simply enough to take advantage of the opportunities that arise in your life, you will fall short of greatness. Anyone sentient can do that. What you must do is learn how to press forward precisely when everyone around you sees disaster. It is at seemingly bad moments, when people least expect it, that we can act swiftly and unexpectedly to pull off a big victory. While others are arrested by discouragement, we are not. We see the moment differently and act accordingly. Ignore the politics and focus on the brilliant strategic advice that Obama's advisor, Rahm Emanuel, once gave him. You never want a serious crisis to go to waste. Things that we had postponed for too long, that were long-term, are now immediate and must be dealt with. A crisis provides the opportunity for us to do things that you could not do before. If you look at history, some of our greatest leaders use shocking or negative events to push through much-needed reforms that otherwise would have had little chance of passing. We can apply that in our own lives. You always plan to do something. Write a screenplay, travel, start a business, approach a possible mentor, launch a movement. Well, now something has happened. Some disruptive event like a failure or an accident or a tragedy. Use it. Perhaps you're stuck in bed recovering. Well, now you have time to write. Perhaps your emotions are overwhelming and painful. Turn it into material. You lost your job or a relationship. That's awful, but now you can travel unencumbered. You're having a problem. Now you know exactly what to approach that mentor about. Seize this moment to deploy the plan that has long sat dormant in your head. Every chemical reaction requires a catalyst. Let this be yours. Ordinary people shy away from negative situations just as they do with failure. They do their best to avoid trouble. What great people do is the opposite. They are their best in these situations. They turn a personal tragedy or misfortune, really anything, everything, to their advantage. But this crisis in front of you, you're wasting it feeling sorry for yourself, feeling tired or disappointed. You forget. Life speeds on the bold and favors the brave. We sit here and complain that we are not being given opportunities or chances. But we are. At certain moments in our brief existences, we are faced with great trials. Often those trials are frustrating, unfortunate, or unfair. They seem to come exactly when we think we need them the least. The question is, do we accept this as an exclusively negative event, or can we get past whatever negativity or adversity it represents and mount an offensive? Or more precisely, can we see that this problem presents an opportunity for a solution that we have long been waiting for? If you don't take that, it's on you. Napoleon described war in simple terms. Two armies are two bodies that clash and attempt to frighten each other. At impact, there is a moment of panic, and it is that moment that the superior commander turns to their advantage. Rommel, for instance, was renowned for his fronter-fearing his sixth sense for the decisive point in a battle. He had an acute ability to feel, even in the heat of the moment, the precise instant when going on the offensive would be the most effective. It's what allowed him to, repeatedly and often unbelievably, snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. Where others saw disaster, or at best, simply the normal noise and dust of a battle, Rommel sensed opportunity. It is given to me, he said, to feel where the enemy is weak. And on these feelings, he would attack with every iota of his energy, seizing control of the tempo and never giving it up. Great commanders look for decision points, for it is these bursts of energy directed at decisive points that break things wide open. They press and press and press, and then, exactly when the situation seems hopeless, or more likely hopelessly deadlocked, they press once more. 
In many battles, as in life, the two opposing forces will often reach a point of mutual exhaustion. It is the one who rises the next morning after a long day of fighting and rallying, instead of retreating, the one who says, I intend to attack and whip them right here and now, who will carry victory home intelligently. This is what Obama did, not shirking, not giving in to exhaustion despite the long neck-and-neck primary, but rallying at the last moment, transcending the challenge and reframing it, triumphing as a result of it. He turned an ugly incident into a teachable moment and one of the most profound speeches on race in our history. The obstacle is not only turned upside down, but used as a catapult. Prepare for none of it to work. In the meantime, cling tooth and nail to the following rule. Not to give in to adversity, not to trust prosperity, and always take full note of fortune's habit of behaving just as she pleases. Marcus Aurelius Perceptions can be managed. Actions can be directed. We can always think clearly, respond creatively, look for opportunity, seize the initiative. What we can't do is control the world around us, not as much as we'd like to anyway. We might perceive things well, then act rightly, and fail anyway. Run through it in your head like this. Nothing can ever prevent us from trying, ever. All creativity and dedication aside, after we've tried, some obstacles may turn out to be impossible to overcome. Some actions are rendered impossible, some paths impassable. Some things are bigger than us. This is not necessarily a bad thing, because we can turn that obstacle upside down too, simply by using it as an opportunity to practice some other virtue or skill, even if it is just learning to accept that bad things happen, or practicing humility. It is an infinitely elastic formula. In every situation, that which blocks our path actually presents a new path with a new part of us. If someone you love hurts you, there is a chance to practice forgiveness. If your business fails, now you can practice acceptance. If there's nothing else you can do for yourself, at least you can try to help others. Problems, as Duke Ellington once said, are a chance for us to do our best. Just our best. That's it. Not the impossible. We must be willing to roll the dice and lose, prepared, at the end of the day, for none of it to work. Anyone in pursuit of a goal comes face to face with this time and time again. Sometimes no amount of planning, no amount of thinking, no matter how hard we try or patiently we persist, will change the fact that some things just aren't going to work. The world could use fewer martyrs. We have it within us to be the type of people who try to get things done, try with everything we've got, and whatever verdict comes in. We who try to get things done, try with everything we've got. And then, whatever verdict comes in, are ready to accept it instantly and move on to whatever is next. Is that you? Because it can be. Part 3. Will What is will? Will is our internal power which can never be affected by the outside world. It is our final trump card. If action is what we do when we still have some agency over our situation, the will is what we do when agency has all but disappeared. Placed in some situation that seems unchangeable and undeniably negative, we can turn it into a learning experience, a humbling experience, a chance to provide comfort to others. That's will power. But that needs to be cultivated. We must prepare for adversity and turmoil. We must learn the art of acquiescence and practice cheerfulness even in dark times. Too often people think that the will is how bad we want something. In actuality, the will has a lot more to do with surrender than with strength. Try God willing over the will to win or willing it into existence. For even those attributes can be broken. True will is quiet humility, resilience, and flexibility. The other kind of will is weakness, disguised by bluster and ambition. 
See which lasts longer under the hardest of obstacles. The Discipline of the Will Because he has become more myth than man, most people are unaware that Abraham Lincoln battled crippling depression his entire life. Known at the time as melancholy, his depression was often debilitating and profound, nearly driving him to suicide on two separate occasions. His penchant for jokes and body humor, which we find more pleasant to remember him for, was in many ways the opposite of what life must have seemed like to him during his darker moments. Though he